Well, welcome everybody here. Thanks for coming. Um, the atmosphere we like is uh, de definitely the salon, you know. Um, uh, so, and that's not a that re really that's not a casual thing because I think the idea of an intimate gathering where you can inquire is important. So tonight, we being Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Andrew Bartz. Um, and I are beginning a, the first session of what we thought was going to be a three-part series. <laughs> but like everything in Gospel Conversations, it won't be a three-part series. It might be a five-part series. On what um, we're calling the cross and creation. Uh, in other words, and it, it's really uh, looking at the cross as the central feature of the Christian faith and the way it's been traditionally handled um, and looking at uh, um, the issue particularly of penal substitution um, and where that fits in and how appropriate or not it might be. Um, so uh, I'll give an introduction, just a brief introduction to set the context, then really the way it'll work is that, and I mean, Andrew was the first person to, you got me thinking about this. Me, a heretic, uh, I had accepted, you know, PSA as you call it, yep. <laughs> um, uh, until you started putting doubts in my mind. And of course, I'm fertile ground for doubts, yeah. Andrew. Um, so that began our conversation. So I thought, oh, he's under a, a good thing here. <laughs> um, and we'll get you to introduce yourself because uh, you're really mu very much part of our community. But this is the first time I think you've... Yeah. Yeah, talk to the crowd, and I think you've got a, a lot to add. Um, so, first of all, just a broad introduction to this issue. It's a really controversial issue today. It's it's only going to become more controversial. Um, and in broad terms, in the in the in the Christian world, particularly the evangelical world, but probably also it's got its corollary in the in the Catholic world. I'm less familiar with that, but. There's been a polarity between the cross and creation. Um, and um, the polarity seems to be you, you start your thinking about the gospel from one of those two places. And what I've discovered is that this is actually um, an old debate, as it were, not a new one. Uh, that's actually helpful because it means that the questions we're asking are not just... Uh, frivolous. Um, now, the, the, I grew up as an evangelical and I was really good at uh, uh, penal substitution, very good at telling stories about the judicial model, I can tell them tonight. <laughs> um, so that, that's the, refor the reformed view, um, which puts the cross at the centre of the gospel. Um, the uh, the alternative view, loosely speaking, would be more the Eastern view, which in simple, simple terms puts the resurrection at the heart of the gospel. And obviously the two sides of one coin, but in terms of emphasis, there'd be no doubt that if you read typical reform stuff, Luther and Calvin, it'll be on the cross and they'll move to forgiveness of sins and guilt. But this Eastern world, the Eastern Orthodox world, which probably, and that's, that's, 
today, but their tradition goes more directly back to the patristic fathers, puts the resurrection and creation at the centre. Um, and it's almost a matter of perspectives. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience which I've had. I'm very good at visually finding my way, but that's when I'm going in one direction to a place. And when I come back the other way, I don't recognise anything, <laughs> although they're the same streets. And so in a way, it's, we could be travelling along the same street from different directions. Now, um, and again, in, in, <clears throat> in, in very broad terms, you kind of come up with a dark view of God or a benevolent view of God. You know, you sort of come up with a view of God as judge and you're sort of pushed in that direction or a view of God as benevolent and you emphasise creation and the gift of creation and being made in the image of God. Um, and the more that I, in my own journey over the last 20 years, moved into that creation camp, I'd be you know, wanting to tell people the good news, they're made in the image of God, and then you have to stop and say, well, hang on, but, <laughs> you know, you're a sinner on your way to hell. It kind of spoils the story a bit. Um, so, uh, but true to say, what we're looking at is mysterious, and there are these, you know, very serious people have looked at the central events of our faith from both angles. Probably the Holy Grail, I think, don't know, Lisa, whether you recommended I listen to those guys from Ridley? Was it, yeah. Who, who were they? That was Mike Bird. Mike Bird, yeah. Someone else. Yeah, that, well, they did a good podcast on it, which you sent me, and perhaps we could include it on the website to look at, because they gave a pretty good sort of overview of the different viewpoints, but what they were, they thought would be great would be some integrative view. Is there some synthesis that could have these rather than either or, but somehow or other, that'd be the holy grail. So who knows whether we'll get there or not, but that, that'd be our goal, um, which isn't just a compromise, but is some probably new paradigm. So uh, our approach in Gospel Conversations is always one of inquiry, um, which is, uh, um, and the heart of inquiry or rhetoric, which is my, my training, it, it's a funny thing, but there's a great truth in rhetoric that before you order anything, you have to disorder it. And it's, it's the heart of creativity, you know, as I think you all know and I talk about a lot, my professional career has been to uh, lead very major creative innovation, disruptive projects. You have a lot of war wounds and scars for that. But the truth of the matter is they all begin with disordering. That's what makes them scary. And people don't like that. So they want to jump over that into solutions very, very quickly so they don't have to be worried. But um, actually, you'll never get there. So, so an inquiry always requires this breaking down of ways of thinking. And of course, um, uh, that's, that's challenging. You don't want to do it all the time, otherwise you live an insane life, but um, that's, that's the process. Um, and, and with, so the, the approach, which I'll say a little bit more about in the moment, ironically, is to go back behind solutions to look at the problems before you worry about solutions, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of that. Uh, so uh, we're going to have... Um, a, as I said, it was initially a three-part series, they may well be five, but nonetheless there'll be three sorts of chapters. And the first chapter will be 
really uh, going back to the beginning to the landscape. What's the mental landscape within within which we consider these things? Um, and uh, we'll spend time doing that. That's the unframing part. We will then go on in the second part to look a bit at the history mm-hmm. of this debate, which we can you can trace through the 2,000 years of the, That's illuminating and kind of encouraging because you recognise that it's actually always been a debate and people have had different viewpoints. It's very interesting to, I think, respect those viewpoints. I, I like, um, I think some people call it pastoral theology and I... In, in other words, it's unfair to any person to just take their viewpoints without thinking about the situation they were trying to address in their lives. So, yes, I'm very critical of Calvin, but to be fair to him, you need to kind of put yourself into his world and situation. Uh, otherwise, you know, like all of us, he's probably framing his ideas in opposition to things. And oft, as we all tend to do when that happens, we tend to overstate our case because we're we're bat- battling, and so um, so therefore it's helpful to look at the history. Um, we'll do that, and then in the third one we might we'll move more on to paradigms, new alternative paradigms. So that's that's our that's, that's good. it. That's it, Andrew. Um, I'd like you to introduce yourself to us all. Um, first of all, generally, because you're like all of us a confused soul who doesn't doesn't know what you want to do when you grow up. That's right. Um, uh, so t- tell us a bit about your story, please. Just... Uh, okay, so it depends where you want to start. But my, my Christian journey started, um, I grew up in a Christian home. And, and I think it's good to tell you this because, uh, because I've sort of influenced this, this thinking, it's probably good for me to declare my biases early so you can see how much am I projecting my own experience on my theology and then you can work out how much of your experience you project on your theology but I grew up in a Christian home the first Christian book I can remember getting was a little archer book on the Pharisee and the tax collector and so I didn't realize it but the the issue of justification by faith alone was probably the first idea that I was actually taught and always being told you know you you realize you, you you can't think you deserve salvation don't you so even very young um that that was that was just a given and I I can remember believing I was Christian because I didn't think I deserved it. That was the way it worked. And there was various occasions where we were asked to come forward if we wanted to become Christian. I thought, no, I'm, I'm already Christian. And this is at five, right? So that, that's the background. Um, when, when I turned 10, um, there was a big event in, in my mind. Um, we, we were taken into church and the Sunday school was taken into church and I heard the Nicene Creed. I'd probably heard it before, but it really hit me. Spent hours afterwards talking with my dad about that because... As a 10-year-old. I didn't know what it meant, except I just thought this is the biggest idea I've ever come across as a 10-year-old. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the incarnation, it just felt that that is the biggest idea um, in history. Uh, my dad died a year later when I turned 11 and... So I was pretty angry with God. And he was a really big influence on he, your life. He was the driving force of Christian thought in our house. So after that little episode in, in the back of the church where we talked for a few hours, he bought me a Bible, and most mornings we would talk about Christian things. So that, that was very formative. So I was pretty appalled with this God um, when, when Dad died. And I spent my teenage years reading stuff trying to work out why God wasn't true. And I found that a very 
difficult task because I'd go back and look at bits of the Bible and I'd read other things, but I'd look at the Bible and it would ring true. And it annoyed me and I was trying to work out in my head, was this because I love Dad and I wanted to preserve his memory and he believed it? So it was very... Being a teenager is confusing enough as it is without that going on. And so about year 10, I just gave up and thought, yeah, I'm, I believe this. And I couldn't get away from it. So it made it very easy for me in... Grew up in Tamworth where the Anglicans were very reformed um, to, to fall into the the reformed tradition because I didn't want to be Christian and I was so it, it just rang true to me um, we, we grew up with a reformed theology which was pretty hard like I can remember in Sunday school the teacher saying so who did Jesus die for we all go he died for everyone and the answer is no no he just died for the elect yeah, so it was it was quite and it, it's quite a reformed background um, and it didn't always cohere with me. Like, you'd read the Bible, and there's all these times the Bible's talking about all are saved, or Christ died for all, and you're thinking, well, this is, doesn't look like all. So there was a lack of coherence. Um, but I was quite happy to go along with it, because you sort of trust your mentors, and you think, yeah, I must be wrong. I'll work it out later. I, I wasn't in dispute with, with the doctrine. I just thought... It, it's untidy, and, yeah. and it interested me, and thought I should do a little bit more more work. There's dissonance there. Absolutely, yeah. And what I, what I found is, when, whenever when I'm about to go into defensive posture here, I'll try not to. The, whenever I would raise questions about the Trinity, or incarnation, or about how the death of Christ worked, I became Andrew, who didn't believe in the Trinity, or Andrew, who didn't believe that Jesus is God. So it was really hard to um, ask questions, too many questions. So I think. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I hung in there. But then you went, you, you did go to more college, you did a, did, yeah. uh, and you, yeah. a little bit about that journey. Well, well I, I was thinking about that. The, the first time I heard the term liberal used of theology was at my church in Tamworth, where they were describing more college as a liberal college. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, wow. Yeah, I know. So, so when you come from the, the hard right, uh, and yeah, I went to more college. I must say, I... I, I resonated more with the, the Anglican position, which, unlike some reform positions, seems to have it really worked out and it's tight, where I found the, the, um, well, the epistemic humility of saying, well, there are areas that we're not going to define down too tightly because we, 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 we're not sure. Um, I, I found that very appealing. Um, yeah, and so more closure is a great experience. But the, then you... I. I think a story you've told, which I'd like you to retell, yeah. is the one where you, you know, two lectures, one... Yeah, all right, so this, this is about the word gospel. We, we'd had a lecture on evangelism, and we'd come out with this phrase that if, you, if you're evangelising people and you're not talking about sin and judgement and the wrath of God, then you're not preaching the gospel. All right, we go into the next lecture, which happened to be Paul Barnett, and we're, we're moving through Acts. And somebody says, hey, why do we call these... these um, there, are, there are a series of sermons in Acts by, by Paul and Peter, which get called the, the, um, uh, the evangelistic sermons in Acts. And someone said, why, why do we call these evangelistic? Because we noticed that they don't actually talk about those things. And um, Paul Barnett sort of slapped us away. I often felt like Paul Barnett was... Like the, uh, the the cat we had at home in town with this big old cat, and the little pups would come up and torment it and play with its tail, and it just <laughs> open eye and go whack, and the little pup would go across the room. Well, he he would let us ask questions and run wild, and then just 
say something and destroy us. Uh, and I think, I think it was me who said, you know, he said words to the effect, so do you think Paul and Peter weren't, didn't know the gospel? And you think, well, I'm not sure I want to go that far. And I think it was me who said, but wasn't, weren't they preaching to an audience that knew all the atonement categories and knew about those things, and so they didn't need to say it? And they just said, what about the Areopagus? And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not going to put my hand up too often. Mm. It's, it, yeah, you had people who were Gentile who, who they didn't actually feel obliged to explain those things to. Yeah. So that's your, uh, your theological journey. Uh, just professionally, I mean, you really you apply across software, accountancy, theology. Yep. Ish. Yeah. So. <clears throat> confused. You're confused. I'm so. confused. Yeah. Desperately confused. Um, so I started off working in Sydney in accounting for one of the big, big four firms, went to college, worked in ministry uh, in Sydney in business, ministry to business people. So I, 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 I didn't really want to go into parish. I wanted to see the people I worked with, understand the gospel better. Funding ran out for that, so I, I had to, to work and got into technology. Thought, thought we'd recapitalise the ministry and go back into ministry in the city. Um, didn't work out that way. But yes, I fell into technology and because I did a commerce degree, uh, I, I can act as a CFO, but I also have um, a, a technology business on the side. Yeah, which is a very exciting which business. Which is very exciting. And yeah. uh, we won't go there because no, we'd be there all we, night. We but, um, uh, so, but nonetheless, I think what is important um, in terms of the perspective we often take in gospel conversations is we're looking at God in the wide world not just inside a church world. Um, and, and I think most of us and like uh, cross-disciplinary thinking where there's just, we're not into one channel. So, so thanks. thanks for that. Um, so the, um, our path of inquiry, as I've said already, three parts. Um, and we're going to, this time, uh, in the first session and possibly in the second <coughs> session, because I, I think we've got yeah. a lot to get through, actually go back to the problem, which put very simply is if the cross is the solution, what's the problem it's the solution to? And um, in this way of thinking, it's actually worthwhile just me explaining how very rare and significant this is. Um, Ray, you're a designer. Yeah. Um, one of the most profound things that my mentor, Richard Buchanan, ever told me about design is that what's interesting is not problem solving, but problem finding. Um, and going back into the issue, you know, and to do that, you let go of solutions and you, you go back into what we call the problematic area. Um, somebody who said this uh, very powerfully um, was a man called Horst Rattel, who wrote an article in 19... 73, essentially challenging traditional problem solving. And he introduced a beautiful phrase that a lot of people love called wicked problems, by which uh, roughly speaking, he meant socio-technical sprawling problems. Whereas when most people think of problem solving, it's almost too tight, too formulaic, cause and effect thinking. Um, and um, there's a strong argument that all strategy faces wicked problems. Now, the issue with wicked problems is that you'd actually need new toolkits for them because they don't yield to traditional, traditional ways of thinking. 
He famously had 10 features of wicked problems. I won't go through them all, but the first one is really relevant to us tonight. It's the most, he actually destroys the word, the concept of problem solving as, as a improbable concept. If you have it, you won't actually solve a wicked problem. And, and his words were that if, if you do any sort of problem solving course, you'll be told number one step is to define the problem, to define the problem. He said, there is no definition possible of a wicked problem. No definition is possible. I, I use the example of, uh, I used to use the, the Cronulla riots. You remember the Cronulla riots? So, so we just think about that. How would you define that problem? I mean, where would you start? Is there a definition of that problem? There clearly isn't. It's just too messy. But what he said was this. His words were, there is no definitive formulation for a wicked problem. But, this is a really important but, the formulation of the problem will determine the formulation of the solution. So just going back to that example of the Cronulla rights, if, you, if you're a police person and you see this is a law and order problem, guess what you'll get as a solution? If you're um, a parent of uh, some of the bra boys and they talk about the problem, you'll get a different problem. Guess what? You'll get a different solution. Um, if you went and talked to you know, some of the long-term residents, how they formulate the problem, guess what? You'll get a different solution. So what this says is actually how you think about what on earth the issues are frames everything else. So start way earlier in your thinking. Now, I think that's, that issue has really crawled if the, uh, this whole debate, because we're down trading solutions, you know, um, and if the cross is a solution, to what problem is it the solution? So that's what we're going to look at. And the way that <clears throat> manifested itself for me was, um, particularly at college, noticing that we all generally had the same idea, but we would talk about certain doctrines in such different ways. There's, there's variances, and we think, Okay, how, how is it if we're reading the same Bible, it became a very interesting question for me, why is it that we, we can read the same Bible and come out with, with different views? And I heard someone talking about another topic, but <clears throat> just said, if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And, and that it made me feel like I could write exam questions and say, answer them and say, yes, this is the answer, if, if that's the problem, but is it the right question? Is it the right question? Yeah, and this is just, I mean, this is um, another, I guess what Rattel would said was there are probably many different questions you could ask, but be careful you choose because you'll, you'll get an answer to it. And um, I mean, just to know how significant this is, if you want to know, you all would have known Motorola hardly exists today. Um, Motorola were the, famously in the 1990s the home for the most advanced problem-solving methodology in business. You, you, if you went to Harvard or anywhere, you would learn the, mo the, the Motorola system, business process re-engineering. And they, they were hell on wheels on it. Now, essentially what it means is efficiency. Our problem is costs and how do we manufacture more and more efficiently? How do we manufacture faster and faster and faster? And, and the focus on that was maniacal in the company. But guess what? they were making the wrong stuff, just making it faster. And um, some management consultants wrote a famous article that said, actually your problem solving methodology could be killing you. It's just taking you over the cliff faster. 
Um, I've got a, a little um, interplay with that. <coughs> because at the beginning of the century, in 2001, um, I was working with Channel 10 Village Roadshow and All Stereo on an internet venture that was also trying to do a mobile phone play, a mobile network operator. And I had to go to Finland, uh, not, not to see Nokia, but to see Ericsson. But the news was, when I went, that the design team for Nokia had been poached by Motorola. And so everyone thought that the, like, Nokia did well against Motorola because the operating system was so, so good, great user experience. Um, but what happened, Motorola took this team, they paid about $12 million sign-up fee to take them, they never changed their operating system. You mm -hmm. never changed their operating system and people were just bewildered. Why did they strip these people out of um, Nokia and, and not know what to do with them? Yeah, exactly, because they were focusing on the wrong problem. So. This kind of creative thinking is important for us. We don't want to do a motor roller on the gospel. No. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's start. Um, penal substitution, uh, the resident evangelical position. Um, I said it's being challenged by various people. Um, I mean, I, I, I could name a few names. Definitely Douglas Campbell, um, who in the minds of many people is the new resident Pauline Expert from Duke University. Um, Tom Wright, I think Tom Wright is definitely, at the very least, he, he says it's uh, overblown, too emphasised, and, and his book, The Day the Revolution Began, is an alternative. It's actually really worth a read. Um, Darren Bulasek, I haven't read all of his bits, a huge tome, but um, he's an evangelical, and it's about 500 pages, and it's a complete um, deconstruction of penal substitution. Um, uh, interestingly, in the case of um, at least two of those guys, um, what's sort of accelerated their interest is work with the underprivileged. Um, in the case of Darren Bulasek, it's capital punishment. He changed his mind on capital punishment and uh, found himself in his local church somewhere in the south of America um, protesting against uh, somebody who had had the death sentence. And, of course, capital punishment, you know, like it looks like the penal substitutionary atonement authorises capital punishment. So th th uh, that was him. But well, how would you summarise pe well, uh, uh, penal substitution? It sounds very good. Yeah, I'll, I'll get, uh, yeah. you, you, you give your summary of it. Okay, so I'll, I'll start back a bit. But the early church started to think about what, what, what happened when Jesus died, because we all know and agree that it had it, his death achieved something that leads to something called our salvation. So that, that was that was given, um, but we, we're not actually told how that process works. We, we're given a, a series of metaphors, and we we try to reverse engineer what happened from the metaphors. And so. The, the process through history is somebody will grab the metaphors and say, I think this is what happened in, inside the black box. This is what happened. Or inside the tube. This is what happened. And then other people will say, well, you're not, you're not doing justice to all the metaphors. You're focusing on one or two. And, and the reason... Um, yeah, so as, as we go through history, there are more and more atonement theories. And one, one of the things I liked when I started looking at atonement theories, they didn't get capital letters. They weren't in the creeds, they didn't get capital letters. Everyone was really aware that we're just guessing how did this process work. Um, and the problem is 
the, our theology ends up taking on a life of its own and sometimes trumps the scripture. And that, that's where it becomes a problem. But really, you're just asking the question, what's my hunch? I like the word rumour. What's, what's the rumour that I've made up um, to explain what happened that does justice to those metaphors? And if you line those metaphors up, if you're into maths, this illustration will work for you. Otherwise, I'm sorry. But you get scattered diagrams in statistics and you try to put a line of best fit through them. And that, that's basically what you're trying to do when you do a, a, an atonement theory. You're trying to do justice to most of the evidence. And as Tony said, the, the, way, the way you look at the different metaphors will, will determine how you prioritise it. Now, when, when I talk to um, Anglican bishops and lecturers at Moore College who, who go around and visit churches in Sydney, <clears throat> they, they will often say, if, if the topic comes up, I don't bring it up, um, how it concerns them that our church services often focus on just one metaphor. Like all the songs will follow one metaphor and, and not do justice. So, so I, I think everyone realises it's very easy to slip into, into that trap um, and it, it takes a little bit of work. So penal substitutionary atonement, it, it, it became interesting to me because even within that um, definition, that, that term, there's, there's a range of meanings. So let, let me start back, um, fellow called Origin. When, when push came to shove, he had to give an explanation of what he thought happened on the cross. And so we're dealing with something really important, but we're guessing, right? So we've got the metaphors, but we're guessing what actually happened. And one of the metaphors is a ransom is being paid, right? One of seven metaphors. He said, ah, the ransom's being paid to Satan. A few hundred years later, Anselm pops up. Well, there's, there's other variations. People say, no, that doesn't make sense. Uh, Satan never had that much power. So who's the ransom being paid to? Right now you can see already we've got fixated in Western thought to the, the ransom metaphor, and that, that tended to dominate. And the, um, the, the, the ransom is paid to God. And what, what this, this triggered me, Anselm said um, that God is like a feudal landlord and when he, when he is dishonoured, Someone's got to pay. And I thought, man, that's... You're always a little concerned about anthropomorphisms where, where we impose on God our own experience. And, I, you know, that starting line that God is like a feudal landlord, yeah, yeah I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure. But that, that's where we went. Now, what, what the reformers did is that much more sophisticated. And they said, OK, we, we can see in the, the engine that is driving um, Anselm's view... Is is the um, the dignity of God, and they said we're going to we're going to take take that engine out and we'll replace it with another engine. And what we're going to do is call it the righteousness of God. And there is something about God's sense of justice that means <clears throat> that somebody's going to pay. It looks it looks very similar, but it's different. And part of the reason penal substitution atonement is so compelling is that it ticks a lot of the boxes, right? It, it does justice to more of the metaphor. You, 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 yeah, that, that's why it's the strong one. It, it, does, it does a very good job of dealing with the metaphors. And we will have to talk more about metaphors and how we treat metaphors going on because that, that's where the battle's fought. Have we understood the metaphors properly? Are we taking them into consideration the right way? And, and are we viewing them the right way? I'll just give you a brief example that... <coughs> There, there was a, a theory, oh, there, there, 
often atonement theories will turn up that say Jesus' death is, is an example. Right? And you know, when you come from a reformed tradition, you start getting hairs go up your back and your neck. No, we want to say Christ's death actually achieved something. It's not just an example. And at that point, one of the questions you've got to ask about that metaphor, the example metaphor that turns up, is um, what, what do I think that metaphor was? And, and this is subtle. Do I think that metaphor was the, the purpose of the cross or a result of the cross? In that, was, was the purpose of the cross just to be an example, which some people, and, and that's, that's the group that we tend to push back against, you know, no, no, death of Christ actually achieved something. So it's, it's not the purpose of the cross, but it's certainly a result. Like, you can't help but see what Jesus did on the cross and think that is a profound example. So that, that's where it gets really subtle, and you've got to look at the, the metaphors and say, <clears throat> um, would I think differently about this if I thought that metaphor was a result rather than a purpose? And, and we'll get into that as we go but on. If we were to say, in summary, on the, on the penal substitution, yeah. this is a judicial metaphor primarily, and in which, in simple terms, God punished his son... Yeah. Um, he punished his son. It's a substitution, though. It's a substitution. Yeah, so, but so he penal substitution. So yeah. yeah. But he punished his son on his, our behalf, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And um, and that this was done to satisfy his wrath against sin, his justice. Um, and that's it in a nutshell, which is behind um, I think most conceptions now. The a lot comes out of that, though. A lot comes. Well, <laughs> well, well. When I say a lot. I mean, I, what comes out of it is a picture of God yeah. um, as punitive, having, having a kind of a justice framework. Yeah. yeah and a, is that the Odyssey? Is that what we call no, no, not no. Really. the Odyssey? No, not really. The Odyssey is um, a term that says, how, how, what, what's your, your theory for evil? Why, why, oh, why is there evil in the world? Yeah. Um, so, but, so God requiring the death of his son is not an evil? It's not an act of evil? No, yeah. so it's nothing to do... It, it's it gets a, circular because um, if God wants it, it's not evil. So when you grow up in a reformed tradition, if God wants it, it can't be evil. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. You, and, yeah, and, but we, we sort of stand back and, you know, while you want to say God's sovereign and he can do what he likes, sometimes some of the things that we say seem to be really incongruent, like God is love, but he likes doing this. And you think, that's... Yeah, and there are, there are metaphors, there are parables in Scripture that just don't describe God like that. So mm -hmm. we're not the first people to have this problem, but it, 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 there's a lot of tension and dissonance, which raises the question, are we asking the wrong question? Have we asked the wrong question so we get into the wrong answers? And well, before, before we go there, though, I want to, I want to go into that, that, that core of this judicial model, which, as you said, the, the, the reformers really crystallised. Yeah. I mean, Luther was a lawyer. Um, and it was a very sin-based, law-based... The, the model... I used to tell the story that, you know, I'm a sinner, yeah. I appear before God, I'm, and then Christ comes and takes my place and takes God's punishment, and if that didn't happen, then God would be unjust because he'd be forgiving me, yeah. um, and as, if a judge forgives me and I'm a sinner, well, that's the wrong thing to do. That's, I used to tell that story very eloquently um, and be completely satisfied with it. But there are problems with this yeah, model. Yeah. Um, there so, are problems with all of them. Sure, but but that's but, yeah. but this, the, this is the dominant one yeah. today. Let's be fair. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And, In our circles, yeah. Um, so 
what do you see as the problems with that picture of God? Well, what, again, the, I, I think I came from, from it trying to keep it together and trying to work out what is it that I don't understand to make sense of this. So my, my assumption was I was not getting something. Um, and I, I think, yeah, so there was, there was um, dissonance between the God who's love and the God who... who the picture of God behind the models. Yeah, the, the, it, it was, was difficult, um, but I thought resolvable. The, the fact that, yeah, the, the, the real problem, I think, for me was the, the lack of coherence. So I just asked lots of questions to try to make it cohere and started stumbling. And the real, the real... I wasn't troubled by a God who was angry. Like, it, that, that didn't trouble me. It was the, the dissonance that troubled me. I couldn't, couldn't reconcile it all. And I must say, I wasn't, I wasn't committed to the... I, I thought, because God's God and greater than me, that it would be highly likely that I would never come up with an alternate idea. Because mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, his ways are beyond my ways, that, that sort of stuff. So that dissonance, essentially, I would say, was a dissonance between a model of God as just and holy and a model of God as loving yeah. and connotations around that. All right, this, again, this is confessions and biases. Um, one of the things... I noticed, I don't know, when I was in early, probably sixth class, you know, not long after Dad died at Easter, um, that God had his son die in our place. And it, it you know, it was Easter. And it, it sort of even makes me even now. I thought, I am so not like God. Because uh, I knew what it was like to have a father-son relationship torn apart. And I thought, I would let the whole world die before I would have let that happen. And I just remember this Easter thinking... Whatever God is, I am nothing like him because I would not let my father-son relationship be broken like that. So it was that sort of thing that caused dissonance for me. And I thought, is that my problem? And then, then I started thinking through, and this is much where it's much more experiential. You, I started thinking through, surely God's not less loving than I am. You know, it just, the things like that just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Well, the difficulties that I began to see in it, mm -hmm. as I thought about it um, were... A bit like you, I think I, I, I somehow or other accepted God's right to be just. But the first difficulty that I began to see was the resurrection is not part of the soteriology in the penal substitution model. What it means is it's all about the cross, it's not about the resurrection. And, and that the, it's almost like all the work was done at the cross where a price was paid and the resurrection was some kind of exit door because Christ was eternal. And... The more I thought about that, the more I thought this is very inadequate. Um, I then later found out there are other people who think the same way. So, so where does the resurrection? That was one anomaly for me, one incoherence. Um, that one didn't hit me until college. Yeah, because there, there was a book we had to read called by Oliver O'Donovan called Resurrection and Moral Order, and I just thought the title was so bizarre because I'd never thought about ethics and resurrection being on the same page, and I. I I resisted reading the book for a while because I just wanted to think, can I make up, can I make up a set of ideas that make sense of that title of that, that book? Um, how, how would I possibly tie ethics and moral order, which is a creation thing at the end of the day, to the, to the resurrection? And um, yeah, so that, that, it was not until college that I actually stumbled on that one. Well, I, I, it was another book that uh, I read um, was hopelessly entitled The Soteriology of the Resurrection. It's been renamed because I don't think that was a terribly successful title in the bookstores. But, um, Soteriology, Tony, just 
salvation, how, how, how salvation works. And um, the name will come to me late, uh, in a moment of the author. But the opening pages were devastating to me, where he simply did a word count, a page count of the great systematic theology works of the 19th oh, and 20th yeah. century. And it's like 95% on the cross and 5% on yeah, the resurrection. Yeah. And so something's wrong because clearly the New Testament didn't have that idea. The resurrection was very integrated. So yeah. the evangelistic sermons of Acts, they're all about the resurrection. All about the resurrection. Yeah. So the, the, the other problem, which I didn't worry about at the time, personally, because I'm not a social justice person, I, I confess, I'm sorry. I, I'm sort of drag kicking and screaming into the left wing of politics, but um, I'm there now, but you know, um, at, heart I'm a at heart I'm a capitalist. Um, <laughs> But was that, that this penal substitutionary model seems to authenticate violence? And, and there's no two ways about it. I mean, Calvin, Calvin um, at least enthusiastically supported the burning at the stake of one of his theological opponents. Um, and that if you actually believe God punished and killed his son, that seems to, uh, that's uh, Belusic's yep. point. It seems to authorise a, 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 a violence. Well, as you are, said the same yeah. yeah. So, so increasingly that's, and I think for a lot of people, very, not just problematic, but in, incoherent with Jesus, like the Jesus who in all the parables talked about love your enemies. It just, so, so that incoherence was... Definitely there. If, if going back to the reformers putting the the righteousness engine in in the vehicle, it it gets to the stage where, ironically, your reformed God is not quite as sovereign as you thought because he's actually under law. He's under this. It, it's a law of righteousness, and you think, wow, your, your God's not free. Um, he, he, he can't do certain things. Well, He's yeah. bound by this concept of righteousness. Well, this one began to occur to me too after a while that thinking it through, thinking that, so the judicial metaphor, we all understand there's a yep. judge, there's a criminal. Yep. And by the way, the penal substitutionary model, one of, the, one of the things I really began to dislike about it, it's presenting the baseline relationship where God is and us are enemies. We're adversaries. He's against us. Anyway, leaving that one out for the moment. But, um, but in a, any judicial system, we all know that judges are under a law. There's some higher law to which they must answer. And tucked in behind the penal substitutionary model is the idea there is some overarching morality to which God must <laughs> be subordinate, which is ridiculous. ridiculous. And this is where we've got to start being a little bit brave and pushing against our understanding of some of the metaphors because when when you do Hebrew and I, I did poorly at Hebrew but I got some of the ideas that were, were, were brilliant um, a, a judge in the Old Testament isn't like a judge in Western culture in that the judge comes in to reconcile people and bring them together and so they, the way they were using judge in the Old Testament is, is as a problem solver not not just an arbiter of law, um, mm -hmm. which again, once you once you <coughs> ask the question, am, am I reading that metaphor wrongly? Mm. Um, it, it it opens up, it starts to move those dots on the page and make it easier to fit a, a line through it. So so the, so, so I guess it's for this and other reasons that people are fine as a metaphor, um, 
and, and one of the uh, finding it unsatisfactory or else problematic, I think Tom Wright's position is that it's monopolistic and that's problematic um, at the very least. So um, just stepping back now to summarise the position you and I in our conversations really, I think, uh, would, would agree with and have come to that going back to where we began, which is if the cross is a solution, what's the problem? And I think in, in simple terms, the problem is Genesis 3, the fall. So the fall is the problem because this introduced sin and therefore sin required punishment. So if you think about it in very, very simple terms, the cross, the beginning of the story of the cross is Genesis 3. Now, straight away we see a problem. It is not Genesis 1. It's Genesis 3. And so um, within that, um, even within the soteriology or the salvation picture of the cross, it's, as I think what we discussed and said, it's, it's a how, not a why. In other words, my sins are forgiven. That might be well and good, but then what? And why was I created in the first place? All those questions are unanswered by, by the model. And... Um, yeah, last week I was at a, at a conference overseas where there were a lot of Middle Eastern and North African people. So they more had, had Eastern theology. That, that's not the reason I was there. but And it was interesting talking to them because it, it reminded me of people I've had in groups who have been from Orthodox traditions. Um, and even, even reading the, the early church, Eastern early church fathers, that... I wouldn't want to, this is a hypothesis, because I don't think I've read enough to know, but in talking to these people and what I have read, I, I, I get the sense, because when, you, when you're reading the, the early church fathers, they, they're clearly not answering questions I'm asking as in the 21st century, right? So it, you've got to work a little bit to work out what, what is the issue that's really driving them? What, what would I have to believe to make that a rational debate? And my, my hypothesis is, we in the West talk a lot about our salvation and, and that mechanism, and that we're very individualistic, we know that. And um, once you're saved, you ought to try to bring God some honour by being obedient in some way. And we're really awkward about that because we don't, don't want to say it's works, but we want people to live good lives and we know Paul urges us to do it. So it, it, it's, it's hairy. But what I've noticed, and it, it, it's a sample, it's a hypothesis, is... The, the Eastern Church seemed to, first and foremost, the question seemed to be, how do you glorify God? You're made in the image of God. How do you reflect him? How do you glorify him? And then there is a, a question, oh, well, how? Well, you need the Holy Spirit to actually do that. And that's what salvation's about. So, so what, what we think is the front end, the pointy end of the salvation story, they sort of have, have as a necessity at the back end. And what, what's appealing about the hypothesis, at least, is they're, they're all about glorifying God and how do you do that? What's the means to do that? Where, where we tend to think, well, how do I get right with God um, as opposed to how do I bring glory to God? Now, that may be very, very subtle and I might be... Well, I don't think it is subtle. I think it's, it's a huge... And that really point, huge. it's huge because if we start with the glory of God and how do we glorify God rather than how do I get Genesis fixed? It's, it's, we're going back to Genesis 1. So I think the position that we'd certainly begin with by saying um, is, well, what if we went back to Genesis 1 as the problem? What, um, so that's where we'll finish off tonight. But as I've been thinking about this through, it is 
it is really a paradigm shift if you actually put yourself back in Genesis 1 and say, what's problematic about creation? What's problematic about creation? What's unfinished about creation? To which the cross might be an answer. And it's a, it, 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 but first you have to ask yourself whether you're asking the wrong, the wrong question. Well, the wrong question is, is atonement really relevant? It's an old Jewish idea, and it's an idea of sacrifice rather than salvation. We'll come, we'll, we'll come to that okay, one. Right. We'll come to that one. But, yeah. but if you actually go back to, it's, you know, decide, we'll put aside, let's call solution things like atonement and forgiveness and the cross and whatever, whatever it's going to be, whatever the package is going to be, we go back to saying if Genesis 1 and 2, if we flow into Genesis 3 from Genesis 1 and 2, what if we took that stance? Uh, the question is what's problematic, uh, frustrating, unfinished about creation to which the cross and the resurrection might be the answer? Now, now that's a very different question. And if you start to think about that question, by the way, you'll get to Athanasius and Irenaeus. You'll get to the, because that's the question, one of the, one of the simplest, uh, I, I marinate my mind in the patristics. I read quite a bit of them. And it is just a different world. They, are, they start everything from creation. And all the questions come. So that would be their, that was their, their question. Um, so, um, personally on, on, on that, I, I want to make sure, look, we're on liberty to pursue the course we want, but I, I want to make sure that I don't go backwards in a theory that actually satisfies less of the metaphors than we've got already. So I, th I think we've got to make sure whatever we do is is not not just accommodates how we would feel better, but will actually do more justice to the the, the, the verses in scripture, the metaphors in scripture, and, and we're actually building on that and moving forward. Well, I think it's it's that's true, um, and I think the, you can do it. But the, well, the, the the bigger question is the question: How do I get saved? Hmm. How do my sins get forgiven? Is there's a real issue, which is it's not relevant to 99% of the people in the world we live in today. Okay, um, It's not a great conversation starter. And so at the very least, we have a communication problem. The question of why on earth do I exist when I didn't even ask to exist? And what's it mean to be a human being? That's today's question. That's the real question. <laughs> so the question of why do I exist and what is it? This is Genesis 1. And this is where, you know, the great... Patristics, the Cappadocian Fathers, Origen, whom you've mentioned, um, Irenaeus, they were actually, just a word about them, uh, they were incredibly articulate in Greek philosophy. And that's the questions of Greek yeah. philosophy. They were philosophers as much as they were theologians. Uh, and they So the question of existence and why, what, and what's the relationship, if you go back further, well, what on earth is the relationship between the uncreated and the created. What, how, 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 so we're right back into murky territory, but I think one thing we could all say, certainly this is a much more relevant um, place in, in, our, in the world we live in today, I think, um, this, this question. But, but problem is we, most Christians don't have the language to enter that territory. Now, so, very specifically, the question we've now reframed, I've written it down here, yep. so, uh, what is the problem in creation for which the cross might be the answer? Um, now, the word problem, I, by the way, I have to say something about that word now before we yeah, go, yeah. which I don't like the word problem and I don't like problem solving. 
Um, the reason I don't like it is because it invokes a reactionary. My solution will be defined by the problem. It just, that's the way it is. So my thinking's now straight away limited. Um, in my experience, as I've done you know, a lot of work in big systems with people confronting the issue, uh, issues and trying to develop strategies, the issue is not so much there's a problem, which is the machine doesn't work, as, as it is what I call frustrated purpose. Most people really, we could be a lot better than this, um, we're not achieving our aim. It's, it's, in other words, it's a framing that's positive, not negative. Now, I'm not saying we do have problems, like the car doesn't start in the morning, I've got to get the car started, but the question is, why do I want a car anyway, and where are we going in the car? Um, and those questions are more, they, they, they are problematic, but they're not, they're more, the, so the word we st that we began to use was frustrated purpose. A sense of, mm, could be better than this. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, now the minute I, I define a, an issue as a frustrated purpose, of course I've got to get into, well, what's the purpose that's frustrating you? Um, which, is, which is very relevant to looking at Genesis 1. So. Um, in, in this, if we were to sort of take ourselves back, therefore, we have to take ourselves back into a mental landscape of creation. And um, you nominated um, some big words that needed conceptual words. I hope you've not forgotten this, otherwise it's yeah, a short, I, I, uh, short interview and we finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've written the words down. I've got them in front of you. You have got yes. them in front of you. Those words. They were righteous, <laughs> I mean, righteousness, justice, personhood and dominion. Yeah. Words which, are, well, dominion is not so much used. Dominion's no, the, the, the newish no, no. word. Mm. But uh, start with justice for us. In, in the judicial model, mm. the justice is the penal code. Mm. Um, you know, the laws which I have transgressed, that's justice. Yep. What's wrong with that? It's, it's hard to, all right, so the, in, in Greek, the word that, from which we will translate justice and the word we translate righteousness are uh, same root. And, and that's, that's interesting because we, we'll often think of justice as a courtroom and, and we, we superimpose you know, 21st century Western thought on that word. And I, I was always troubled by the righteousness word. Um, and this, this, this sounds very dangerous to say because when... When you say you're justified by faith alone, justified, justice word, right, it's a righteousness word. And so as soon as you start to tinker with the righteousness word, everyone gets very, very toey because, you know, that, that's well, quite... I don't, so feel free, know, feel free to keep I'm going. I'm sure no one else does. But you've got, to be, you've got to be a little bit sensitive to, to your audience when you start pulling at the, the, at the righteousness word. When, when I was college, I went to a, uh, a second-hand book um, sale and I picked up a book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross by Leon Morris, and it had been given personally to Bishop Mole, right? So I thought, oh, this is a bit of a great. So I read through it. When you get to chapter eight, uh, it was written in 55, and it's sort of C.S. Lewis style English. He, he's got this great quote where he, and I can't, I can't do it justice, but basically, I won't even try. But he, he says that there's almost no way that we use the word righteousness in the way that the, the Greeks and the New Testament writers were using it. And for me, that was a sort of a devastating moment. You're thinking, hang on, we, we, we've, we've built a lot of doctrine on this justification by faith alone, which is righteousness. Um, 
Glenn Davies was one of our lecturers. He did his PhD on, um, on God's righteousness in Romans. And so it was a big subject at college. And you're just thinking, good grief, is there a different way of viewing righteousness? Now, um, so that, that's, that's always on the boil since college. But Edwin Judge made this particularly easy for us um, because he was talking in one of our series and he brought up the word uh, justice. He'd been talking about the cosmos and how the cosmos is not just the world, but the, the Greeks appreciated the, the way the world worked. They didn't have the sciences we did, but they had some science. And, and it was, you know, a, a fantastic mechanism, right? A, a, an, an organism that... that you existed. could almost say it was elegance yeah, ele and yeah. beauty. Cosmos is elegance. And, and, and it has an order to it. And how we behave impacts that order. So you, you will notice in your Bibles that... It, we're often told about God's righteousness. And you think, well, that's a funny thing to say. If there's only one righteousness, um, why, why do you have to qualify it as God's righteousness? Because people had a view of righteousness before the, the word existed, before the New Testament writers got there. And so they're qualifying God's righteousness because, and this is the illustration Edward used, he said, no, no, um, the Greeks had a view, and Romans, I suppose, had a view of righteousness that if, if everybody wasn't in their right place, because the society had this you know, chain of being, for want of a better expression, if, if somebody got out of order, it, it could put the, you know, the whole planet off its axis. You know, it, it could upset the whole mechanism. And, and so when, when a master had a slave girl who was out of place and beat her, into submission, that's a righteous act. And so it's the Christian you're thinking, hey, that's, that's not how I think of righteousness. And so it raises the question, oh, is there a righteousness of God that's really in contrast to um, what was going on then? Yes, of course, of course. But it also raises the issue for us, is there um, a righteousness of God which is different to our view of righteousness and justice? And you ask the question, how much have we imposed our is that a language difficulty? So philologic, phil, is it about philology? Yeah, it, it's about how, how and that word may have been understood in the Old language. Testament as distinct from. Yeah, it, 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 it strikes me that God is not like the other gods, he's, and he's not like us. And his his whole the whole problem not the whole problem one of the problems God faces is how does he teach us how different he is and how he views the way the world works. What's his worldview? And he's, he's got to use our language and our concepts, and, and that's John Walton's thing. He, he's got to take our, our material and work with it and, and transpose it and say, no, this is how it's radically different. So the picture of this word justice, which the connotations to which we apply it yep. will be in a courtroom yep. um, and a... The idea of a moral code, if, you know, I, if, if I'm going to be condemned, it has to be attached to a, a particular law, a particular statute that I've broken, and so on. Mm. However, what you're talking, what, Ed, what Edwin was talking what about, was closer to beauty. Yeah. In other words, there is a beautiful order and synthesis in the whole of creation, and that righteousness and justice can be put there as in the right ordering of yeah. uh, the entire creation in harmony. So it's a relational beauty of things. And so when we, because of our, our view, our perverse view that needs to be changed, that's, you know, that's what sin means, we've got a bad view of things. Um, 
when, when we see vengeance will be mine, says the Lord, right, we, we immediately go, he is a vengeful God, right, this is good. And there's a verse that sort of is translated that way. But, but it, as a parent, right, and you see your kids in a fight and they're trying to get justice, you, you find yourself saying, no, 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 if there's any smacking being done, that's my job, right? doesn't mean you're going to do it. it just, you're just taking the authority and saying, hey, if there's going to be any vengeance taken, that's my job, not your job. It doesn't mean that God is committed to some sort of punitive justice. It's, he's just saying, you, you, it's not your job to do those sorts of things. Anyway, that's conjecture, but it's worth, if you're going to take this seriously, you end up going to your concordance or your, 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 um, your digital Bible, and you, you, you just print out every line that has the word, every verse that has the word righteousness, and just draw two columns, and look at how it's normally translated and see if it can be translated a different way. You just have to do the hard work um, and you start to say, you, you can actually have an alternate view of God's justice that, that actually fits more of the, the biblical shape than the other view. But what, what we're saying, though, is in going back to Genesis 1, yep. Rodeo, um, there, there, yes, well, I'm going to connect what you said to Genesis 1, which is... Creation is a cosmic order. Mm. The, the, it, is, it is a fabric. It is a beauty. And that's the story of Genesis 1. Um, and therefore, justice and righteousness are better seen as fitting into the beauty of the order, um, which will certainly include moral things, but it goes beyond that. Um, so that's a very big picture. This is, this is what God has set up. The however, because remember I began this by saying what, what kind of problems might there be in creation, to which the cross is the answer. Um, now, we now we introduce the fact that the other big part about Genesis 1 is the role of humanity in that order, um, which introduces the ideas of us being persons, which is a unique category in all of creation. You want to say a bit about that in personhood? Yeah, so when, when I... Uh at college, when I started to write up my alternate, like fourth year, you get a project which you're too busy in fourth year, so after fourth year I was going to write this thing called the, um, the Metaphysics of Biblical Personhood. Trying to work, and it is really hard to work out a, a definition of what a, a person is. Um, and if you think about it for a while, it, it, it's tricky. And where, what, what, I've related to personhood is the idea of dominion and that there is something about being created in the image of God, being personal, that God respects. He's given us dominion and this, this complicates things. He's given us dominion and because he has done something, he wants to remain faithful to what he has done and that creates a problem for him because we chose a path of death. We actually said, uh, we, we want to be unplugged from you, God, and do things our own way and, and have somebody else over us. We don't trust you. We don't want to be in a relationship with you. And that creates enormous problems, as we know, which, which is, we'll probably go more into in, in other days. But the, the, the problem is that when you're created with a huge amount of dignity in the plans and purposes of God, so much so that you're given dominion and he wants to keep his word and continue to relate to you with somebody with dominion, what, what options does God have to bring his plan back on track without um, 
without breaking his promise to humanity, he, the, the promise that's embedded in the created order. Yeah. But we won't go too much onto that tonight because we will never get out of that. Yeah. And by the way, the plans back on track is something that we might challenge because yeah. John Beer certainly yeah. challenges the traditional idea that there was perfection in Genesis oh. 1 and 2, then there was a fall and now we go back. He thinks creation hasn't begun in Genesis. It's beginning, but it's not. It, the work is finished at, at the cross. So he sees the cross as the, the real creation. Um, that God's project, he mm. takes more seriously probably what you have mm. just said. Than yeah. the, uh, God's project was dominion. Yep. And he never got it in Adam. He got yep. it in Christ. I think Bill so, Dundrell would say that. Yes, he's, he was, a very, he was yep. foreshadowing a lot of this. So just to, just, just to sort of sum up, because we probably good yep. good place to wrap up here. I'm going to get you to tell a bit of a story about a dog urinating before <laughs> we finish. But um, it's the picture of, you know, what's sort of what could be problematic or at issue in Genesis 1 um, is that, there, that we've received this cosmos and that God has created the cosmos, but he's created, in creating the cosmos, it's a not God world. So somehow or other, it's a not God world. So he, the minute God goes to create a beautiful not God world, the minute he steps in and intervenes and overrides, it's no longer a not God world. It's, God world. it's a God world. So that doesn't work. Um, he's made us for his agents. And, and, and Tom Wright, I think, in his book on the, how the revolution began, talks about something very similar. Um, he uses a slightly different language. He says that... Um, the traditional penal substitutionary model is is a is a um, sort of a, a transactional model. Yep. Um, uh, uh, it, it's um, whereas the real issue is a vocational issue. It's not it's not a contractual issue of works. It's you've got a calling, and you've just talked about the calling. So so within the ecology of this cosmic beauty. We human beings are the dominion, is the word you use. Yeah. We have dominion to radiate God's presence into that cosmos. Yeah. And so what's therefore problematic about that clearly is if we, which is where Genesis 3 then comes in, which we could talk about more next week, if we invite the wrong forces to work into that cosmos, it's out of joint. Yeah. Um, and... Um, so the problem, therefore, is God doesn't get what he wants in terms of dominion. He, he, he yeah, can't yeah, see, he can't yeah. find a human being to govern the cosmos, yeah. uh, and, um, uh, which is a very, very different way of framing the issue than just we've got sins. It's, it's sort of like God's problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so... You the illustration. Yeah, well, you gave a very good illustration <laughs> right, of... Let me give a little background to it beforehand. So when I saw the book, the title, Resurrection and Moral Order, I had a bit of a think. And uh, after a while, it took me ages, I thought, oh, of course, this makes so much sense. Because when God created the world, he created it good enough for God the Son to live in with his people forever. And so there's something about the moral order which is good enough for God to live in and he can express everything he wants as a person with his people. 
And so all of a sudden I had a, a more glorious view of the creation. Because we tend to have a, a view of the creation because of 1 Peter that it's going to be destroyed, which is not actually how the word's best translated, but refined, but not, not destroyed. Uh, the, the second idea that hit me was, hang on, when God the Father created flesh for Adam, he knew that he was creating the substance that he would give God the Son to wear forever with his people. And for me, that was just spine-chilling. I thought, whatever we are, we, we, would, we were destined for, for glory. We are made out of stuff which is good enough for God to wear, and he can express everything that he would want to as a person with other persons. And so, yeah, he's got all these other attributes, but whatever he wanted to do, he could do in this flesh, particularly if it wasn't as cursed as it is now. But, you know, it's, it's in the ballpark. Which made me struggle with, with some of my reformed background, which never quite made sense because if, if we were just worms and not glorious, then why, why does our sin matter so much, right? If, if, if we are worthless, it wouldn't matter. But if, if I'm actually profoundly valuable to God, then that's where the offence is. And Again, this, this goes back to... So that's all very abstract. Tell me a story. Tell me the story. So the story... <laughs> about the dog urinating yeah, in my right. house. If, if, little, if, if you bring a little dog into, into my house and it, it wheezes on the carpet, it, it's, it's annoying, right? And you clean it up and you, you move the dog away and blah, blah, blah. But if Tony came into my house and weed all over the carpet in the lounge... That... That, that's problematic <laughs> in, in so many ways. Like, there's, there's, there's got to be... I thought more of you tiny than this. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And there's, there's a lot of relationship building that's got to be done, right? It's the... You're better than this, tiny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's, there's just so many levels. You think, why? And, and it's about the dignity of the person or the, 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 the entity that makes the sin sin. Like, if, if we were just worms, it's really hard to understand why God cares. But because he's created us to reflect him, it, it, it's, it, it's outrageous how we behave. Yeah, and I think it's, it, although it's a funny story, it's quite a good one because when the act is the same. The act is the same yeah, by a moral same. code. Yeah. What determines completely how we judge the act is who did it and to, and, 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 to, and to what degree is it short of what they ought to be, which is really where Tom Wright was going with. It's vocation's the problem. And, and if, if our vocation is to rule and govern the cosmos, it's, it's, that's what's in play here. Um, and that's what's at risk. You it's know. a lot of cosmos, they say. They want it just here on Earth. Something, something oh, we'll, we'll go there in a moment, but we'll just what we might do is just finish up there to allow the uh, online audience to ask some questions if they want to, and so we can tidy up. But look, that that's um, thank you, Andrew. Um, that's a clearing of the throat. It's a very uh, <coughs> big topic, and um, we'll pursue it. We'll pursue it further next time. Um, so we might. Uh, in the formal presentation there and just have discussion first amongst us but i think what we said was people could write in any and if anyone's written any questions Stopping.